Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, When Jesus Spoke Plainly, for the second week in Lent, Sunday, March the 12th, 2006. In his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, Brennan Manning describes what he calls a myth that flourishes today in many of our churches. The suggestion that Christian discipleship consists of one rousing victory after another. This myth, this myth he thinks, has done many a believer what Manning calls incalculable harm because it misrepresents the way Christian life is really lived. The myth goes something like this. Quoting Manning, Once I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, an irreversible, sinless future beckons. Discipleship will be an untarnished success story. Life will be an unbroken spiral upward toward holiness. Personal experience, of course, confirms that this myth is patently false, but many Christians still chase it as their standard, goal, or expectation. Thank God for Lent and for Mark's Gospel this week, which shows another way. Lent reminds us that the road to Easter resurrection zigzags through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus modeled the way for us. In the Gospel of Mark this week, from chapter 8, verses 31 to 38, we read how Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ after which Jesus began to predict his death, much to the shock of his disciples who longed for a savior who would vanquish the Romans. We read in Mark 8:31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Resurrection would triumph but not before suffering, rejection, and death. The, the disciples, who so often in the Gospels misunderstood Jesus and were even afraid to ask him questions, got the message loud and clear. For Jesus, we read, spoke plainly about this, quote-unquote. So plainly that Peter rebuked Jesus. This can never happen to you, he objected. And perhaps the sharpest rebuke in all of the Gospels, Jesus characterized Peter's agenda as satanic. A second shock followed when Jesus insisted that this pattern of self-denying suffering was incumbent upon anyone who wanted to follow him. After predicting his own suffering, rejection, and death to the disciples, he spoke to the crowd, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Mark 8, 34 and 35. God's grace is free, but it's not cheap, for it demands everything from us. This is a high price to pay, Jesus admits, and the risk-reward logic should pierce your heart. What good is it, asked Jesus, 
for a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a person give in exchange for his soul? Mark 8, 36 and 37. There's a remarkably parallel incident to this gospel passage in the life of St. Paul. Luke writes that Paul was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. When their ship landed for a short stay at Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus warned that the Holy Spirit had told him that if Paul went to Jerusalem, he would be bound and handed over to the Gentile authorities. Just as Peter rebuked Jesus, who had predicted his own sufferings, Paul's companions begged him to avoid troubles in Jerusalem. Paul's rejoinder is instructive. We read in Acts chapter 21, 8 to 12, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. About a week after they landed in Jerusalem, Paul was in fact arrested, the first step toward his eventual martyrdom in Rome. Paul's entire post-conversion life imitates Jesus' model of self-denial and cross-bearing. When Corinthian believers demanded proof of his apostolic authority, he resorted to biting irony. You want proof, Paul asked, then I will give it to you. I've suffered more hardship, suffering, weakness, persecution, conflict, beatings, imprisonments, sleep depravity, hunger, hard work, lashings, and shipwrecks than anyone else. Three times Paul then tells the Corinthians, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 30 in chapter 12 verses 5 and 9. Even this one moment of glory when Paul was caught up into heaven was accompanied by a thorn in the flesh. Paul boasts about his weaknesses, he says, because it is in those weaknesses that he most experiences the grace, love, and power of God. The three key passages here are 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 12, chapter 6, verses 3 to 10, and chapter 11, verse 1 to 12, verse 10. Jesus describes bearing your cross as a necessary part of discipleship. What does that mean? It's understandable that the world promotes self-indulgence over self-denial, but oddly enough, sometimes the church does too. Martin Luther made a helpful distinction when he contrasted a theology of glory with a theology of the cross. A theology of glory is characterized by a triumphalistic posture which seeks to know God only or especially through his mighty acts of power, victory, miracle, and glory. If you pick up almost any popular Christian magazine, you'll find many examples. The book, The Prayer of Jabez, for example, promises you, quote, a front row seat in a life of miracles, end quote. It is true that we read about God's mighty acts of power in both the Old and the New Testaments, but it was Luther's great contribution to remind us that beyond all his mighty acts of power, God's ultimate act of redemptive love 
and self-revelation was through suffering on a cross. A theology of the cross, in contrast, insists that we know the Father's love not so much through outrageous miracles or startling outbursts of power, but through times of self-denial, suffering, testing, trials, and human weakness. The language of Jesus has passed into our modern lexicon as a sort of joke when we tease about having to quote-unquote bear our cross. But Jesus meant to tell us something essential rather than trivial about his kingdom. Luke put it this way. After describing an incident when Paul was stoned and left for dead outside the city of Lystra, he wrote, We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.25. Language like this is almost impossible to understand for Western believers in the so-called first world, but for the first 300 years of the church, it was the status quo. Lent reminds us that Easter's resurrection victory over sin, death, and the devil is certain in its coming, but the journey that Jesus took, in ours too, passes through the Via Dolorosa. For further reflection, one, consider the place of self-denial in a culture of self-indulgence. Two, distinguish between healthy and unhealthy ways of self-denial and self-affirmation. Three, consider the meaning and implications of Luther's contrast between a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. In four, ask yourself, why are books like the prayer of Jabez so popular? My book review this week is of a book entitled A Million Little Pieces by James Fry, New York, Anchor Random House, 2003, 430 pages. If nothing else, James Fry will test the adage that there's no such thing as bad publicity. This emotionally raw memoir, a word that must be put in quotation marks, of six weeks in a drug rehab center along with a second book entitled My Friend Leonard, published in 2005, both still sit atop the New York Times bestseller list for nonfiction in both hardback and in paper. Only time will tell if they stay there. After intense scrutiny, public outcry, a mea culpa on Larry King Live, and then not one but two appearances with America's pastor Oprah, Fry admitted that not everything in his book is precisely true. In fact, some of it is false. He did not spend 87 days in jail, but perhaps three. It's not certain that he had massive dental surgery with no painkillers. Workers in the famous rehab center where he lived complained that many of the scenarios he described in his book could not and did not happen in their facility. Oprah publicly dissed him and retracted her recommendation. Imagine. I myself wondered how a person who entered a treatment facility at the age of 23, so close to death, after 10 years of hardcore substance abuse, and so full of self-destructive behaviors, 
could later recall minute details and write a book almost ten years later. I found Fry's book narcissistic in a manner that elicited the voyeuristic in me, the reader. What god-awful thing would happen next to this maniac? As Ann Dillard once observed, it's like watching a car chase scene in a movie. Even though you know exactly what will happen, it's almost impossible not to watch. Nor is this good literature, but instead stream-of-consciousness blather. I am still trying to figure out this sentence, quote, Everything I know, and I am, and I have seen, felt, done, past, present, past, now, then, before now, seen, felt, done, hurt, felt, focus, into a something beyond words, beyond knowledge, beyond, and it speaks now, and it says, end quote. Page 160. Yes, you read, you heard correctly. But I suppose we all love a survivor who beats the odds and lives to write about it. And on that count, James Fry is a very fortunate person. James Fry, A Million Little Pieces. For film, I review a delightful movie entitled Mad Hot Ballroom from the year 2005. In 1994, ballroom dance classes were introduced for fifth graders at two New York City schools. The pilot program was so successful that today 6,000 children in 60 New York City schools are required to take a 10-week class in ballroom dancing, with teachers provided by the American Ballroom Theater. The documentary, Mad Hot Ballroom, gives you a front row seat and behind-the-scenes preview of what has now become an annual citywide competition. This is a wonderful film that would make for great family viewing and later discussion. The film follows public schools number 112 in Bensonhurst, an Italian neighborhood turned heavily Asian, public school number 115, a Dominican Republic neighborhood with a poverty rate of 97%, and then public school number 150 in Tribeca as they practice for the competition. The kids learn merengue, foxtrot, swing, tango, and rumba with the dedicated instruction of their teachers who are likely some of the few positive adults in their lives. One teacher interviewed even bursts into tears thinking of her kids. I see them turning into little ladies and gentlemen, she said. Of course, many of these kids have so much going against them, and it's painful to listen to them talk so nonchalantly about poverty, domestic violence, absentee fathers, gangs, and drugs. In this respect, the film reminded me of Born into Brothels and how the art of photography in that film captured the imaginations of small children and even transformed their lives. Others compare the film to Spellbound. The real success of this film is apparent when you consider that there's no narrator. The children speak for themselves, as only awkward fifth graders can, and they have a deeply human story to tell about growing up in New York City. Mad Hot Ballroom from the year 2005. And finally, for poetry, we have a poem by Czeslaw Milos, who lived from 1911 to 2004 and who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1980. This poem is entitled Gift. A Day So Happy 
fog lifted early, I worked in the garden. Hummingbirds were stopping over the honeysuckle flowers. There was no thing on earth I wanted to possess. I knew no one worth my envying him. Whatever evil I had suffered, I forgot. To think that once I was the same man did not embarrass me. In my body I felt no pain. When straightening up, I saw blue sea and sails. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 12th, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.